Have you ever thought about not only how what's on your plate got to your plate, but also what it takes to make it? Not just the fruit or the veggies, but the dairy, the fish, the poultry, or even the meat. What kind of resources went into making that food? For example, the refrigeration that existed right before you put it on your plate, the refrigeration back at the supermarket, in the truck, back to the warehouse, in the truck all the way back to the farm, the energy required not only to keep that food cold, but to move that food from where it was farmed to your plate, which may have even been overseas. In a time when rising energy prices and being careful with the limited resources that we need to survive is more and more on our minds, have you thought about how getting what you need to be healthy could look or maybe even taste different, even approach such a sustainable farming process that it's almost circular? Well, that's exactly what drove my guest today to become a farmer. Sky Blackburn farms thousands, if not millions of creatures every year. But they're not cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, ducks, fish, or anything that is enjoyed in a traditional westernized diet. Sky farms insects. Delicious, nutrient-dense, low-fat, high-protein insects. It's a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you. However, I've got to play some ads because I don't make this show alone and the people that make it with me are fantastic at what they do and I need to pay the bills. So in a moment, you'll hear some commercials and then you'll hear Sky say something cool and then we'll kick off. Here we go. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Scientists are doing a lot of work to secure our food future, basically, with unfortunately not a lot of help from the government so most of the people that are doing work in this area are you know like startups they're food scientists they're biotechnologists and things like that that realize this is a really big problem so now we're at the stage where we've got things like cellular agriculture we're using more regenerative farming techniques we're using a lot of agricultural technologies as well Um, we're starting to farm things like seaweed we're looking at more plant-based diets and there's a lot of options in those kinds of areas. So all of these things are already becoming available. So it's really up to consumers to take a look in their supermarket, to go online, learn about these things and looking at our food system and looking at all these small little changes that you can actually make within your own diet. And that doesn't cost you anything extra to be able to do that. It's really you just making that choice. That was entomologist and food scientist Sky Blackburn. I'm Osha Ginsberg. And this is better than yesterday. G'day, 
G'day, I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. It is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all walks of life, from all around the world, some of them experts in their field. Every episode will leave you with something that goes, you know what? That makes me think a little different or do something a little different and boom, your day's better. Been doing this since 2013. Three times a week I'm here, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays with the guest Fridays. I'm here with you. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a knee strapper with elastoplast. I'm a, a Maroons jersey wearer. I don't know if that's going to be a good or bad thing because I'm recording this the day of the state of origin. I'm a theme park goer tour. I went to a theme park today. It was bananas. And I'm grateful to be here with you. If you want to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone that really got behind Dad Pod this week. Dad Pod is back. Dad Pod with Charlie Clawson. You can go and check that out where you get this podcast. Just search for Dad Pod. It's the one with me and Charlie. There's a few people that said, hey, well, start a parenting podcast called Dad Pod. We were some of them, but ours is there. We've got more episodes than everybody else. And uh, yeah, you can find it wherever you find your podcast. And the episode, uh, the new episode starts um, Tizzy Hall. It's a very interesting episode and I, I encourage you to listen to all of it. It's pretty good. And we'll be back next week with, um, who's next week? I can't remember. We've, we've actually got actual experts. We've got like professors and doctors and stuff this year, which is really, really cool because Charlie and I don't know much. Anyway, so uh, I really appreciate it. If you got, got around dad pod, if you're a dad or mum dad, know a dad, have a dad, know someone who's going to be a dad or someone who is a dad and just like, I don't know what a dad, I don't know how to be a dad. Don't worry, we didn't either. And so we started a podcast about it and it's pretty fun. You just find dad pod wherever you, wherever you listen. So let me tell you about my guest today. Sky Blackburn is an entomologist and a food scientist with a passion for sustainable food practices. In 2007, she founded Edible Bug Shop, which has now grown into Circle Harvest, which is an insect farm. And it essentially uses food waste largely from the fruit and vegetable canning industry. Hey. Hey, Wolfie. Do you want to help me finish recording this? Okay. Come up and sit on my lap. I'm just going to record this thing. Oh, good jumping. There we go. Um, Circle Harvest, which is an insect farm that uses food waste from largely from the fruit and vegetable canning industry to feed crickets and to feed mealworms and create delicious, high-protein, nutrient-dense, low-fat products that are already enjoyed by millions of people all around the world in cultures that aren't westernized cultures, mostly Asian cultures. But they're quickly catching on here. Now, Sky and I really get stuck into this and to how impactful the factory farming industry is on our environment, is on our resources, and the numbers, frankly, will astound you. Now, full disclosure, in the case of the first episode you've ever listened to, I'm uh, Osher, I'm a, a sober vegan celiac, I'm the most boring man in the room. I stopped eating meat 20 years ago, maybe more, red meat, I think, 96, 95, when I discovered how much land and how much water was needed to create the same amount of animal protein as plant protein. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a waste of resources. Because for me, at first, it was all about resources. The compassion and the ethics came later. But my dominant motivation uh, for the way that I eat and eat well has always been based in resources, the conservation of land and water. Because in my opinion, we have more than enough land, water and food to meet our caloric needs as a global population. We really do. If we have a good think about what is going to go onto our plate. And when you consider the amount of deforestation that is caused by farming meat, all those trees, all those organisms that literally suck the carbon dioxide out of the air and pump oxygen into the air so that you and I and Wolfie here, who's in my lap, can breathe, 
for me, trees are important, very important. In fact, probably more important because, frankly, I'd gratefully change my diet a little if it means that I'm not going to suffocate. Now, initially, I called myself a vegan because it was easy for other people to understand, but in the past decade or so, I guess I describe it more as being plant-based. I do not attempt to achieve purity in my mission. I'm, I'm not a fan of that because, frankly, it's impossible to do that in a modern world, and I don't think that's a an achievable aim, and um, it's futile, to be honest, for me. But I do try just to cause as little harm as possible, and a part of that is to explore other ways of helping other people considering eating less meat too. So along the way, I've occasionally I've dabbled in insect protein just every now and again. Now, sometimes that looks like dried mealworms, which are crunchy and delicious. Sometimes it looks like cricket powder, which is, I guess, kind of nutty. Throw in a smoothie every now and again. Now, it's not something I do all the time, but I've enjoyed it here and there. And yet, look, I look, I feel it's important to say to you that if you zoom right out and you think about what we do eat, be it an animal like a cow, which has as much personality, if not more personality than your family Labrador, or a lobster, which has a million legs, long antennae and strange poop-filled innards. What we accept as being okay to eat versus not okay to eat is, in my view, largely cultural. Because if others in our community eat it without stigma, without judgment, chances are we'll probably eat it too. I do feel that in our lifetime, other forms of protein are going to make it to our plate as resource pressure ramps up. Because when you, in this conversation, you'll hear about how much water is needed to make a steak. Think about the last drought that we lived through. Think about the droughts that we're going to see more of in the future. How many people could use that water instead to survive? It's a question we're, we're going to need to think about. And thankfully, there's people like Sky who are working on answers. And some of them are uh, pretty tasty. If you want to find out more about what Sky's doing, go to circleharvest.com.au. I hope you enjoy this conversation with an open mind and maybe a hungry tummy. This is Sky Blackburn. Sky, I'm a. I'm so grateful that I can speak to you because I know that we have shifted this about 67 times. That's okay. Uh, so that we can talk, because I really, really wanted to speak with you. You are an entomologist. You ran a company called the Edible Bug Shop. Yet you've since uh, rebranded to do, I guess, what it says on the box, which is kind of a more or was the, what was the name you came up with? Um, so the new name that we've got is actually Circle Harvest. Circle Harvest, which really explains in a far greater way what, what it is you, you, you actually do. And I'm kind of interested because I think it's, it's a conversation we really need to have. And I've always said I was plant-based because for me, Sky, I, I can't handle the race to purity that comes with a restriction, whether it be religion or whether it be diet. It's like, oh, yes, but you're sometimes you borrow a leather belt for work. Doesn't make you exactly vegan, does it? I'm not, I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm not interested in that. So, you, when did you know that bugs were your thing, Sky? Uh, well, ever since I've been a little kid, I've always been interested in creepy crawly things. So I always knew I wanted to be an entomologist. So when I went to uni, I studied entomology, but I quickly realized that there was kind of no jobs available in entomology in Australia. And it was populated by a lot of like old men and it smelled a lot of mothballs, which kind of wasn't my scene. Um, mothballs, huh? See what you did there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Bogon um, mothballs? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, there was a shortage of food scientists at the time. So I actually did a degree in food science just so that I would have a, um, a job when I finished uni, really. Yeah, right. Um, then we went on a trip to Thailand and we tried edible insects there. And I was fascinated. My first try of edible insects wasn't really fantastic though. So I actually had some um, stir-fried crickets. Okay. Um, they were very oily. They had way too much chili for me. Like I'm not a very chili person. Um, and it was a bit gross. Like I didn't like it to start with. Um, but then next to it, they actually had some bamboo worms that had, um, uh, like lemongrass and ginger on them. And I tried those Uh and they were kind of like, um, rice bubbles. So a bit crunchy on the outside, like airy on the inside. And I really, really liked them. So that was kind of my first positive experience of having edible insects. Then when we came back to Australia, I actually had an education company um, where we go to schools and teach kids about the importance of insects in our environment. So it actually fits in with the school curriculum. And we were doing um, a pet and animal expo and I wanted something unique and gimmicky to get people to come over to our stand. So I made a thousand of these lollipops that had real bugs on the inside. So they had crickets what, and mealworms and little scorpions. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they scorpions? sold out within a couple of hours. Yep. Um, so they were really popular. The weeks after I was getting calls from uh, lolly shops and marketing companies and the wow. newspaper asking if they could stock these lollipops in their stores. So being a food scientist, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, we can do that. But I don't have any information on the nutritional components of the crickets and the mealworms. Thankfully, in Australia, we have we have pretty strong labelling laws, which I'm grateful for. So to yes. do that, you would have had to sort that out. How do we get, yeah. like, what do you do? You send a cricket to someone who puts it in a test tube. What happens? So I sent it away to an analytical laboratory that does the composition of food. So they tested it for all the different things. Um, And when I got the results back, I was actually shocked that no one in Australia was eating them as a source of food. They just had everything that your body needed in this tiny little package. And it was kind of at that moment I felt I had the perfect combination of skills to convince people that this was a good idea. And this was about 15 years ago, so not um, like it was yesterday. Um, and 15 years ago, definitely edible insects weren't something that was talked about. But um, I'm so grateful that everybody's perception around insect-based foods has changed over time. Well, yeah, it, 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 it is it is changing. I, I I, I think insects are some of the most extraordinary creatures as far as evolutionary development goes and some of the adaptations that insects have because of the, in some cases, incredibly short life cycles. Unbelievable, yeah. incredible engineering exists in, <laughs> in, 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 in insects. If you had to list a top three favourite insect list, what would you put it as? Oh, okay. So butterflies definitely would be at the top. Like their life cycle is amazing. They literally turn into goo, like they're a caterpillar. They turn into goo in a chrysalis and then they come out as a butterfly. Like that process is just amazing to me. And you know what? People that say that they hate bugs will still love butterflies So it's a really good entry point for us when we're talking about education and the importance of insects in our environment when people say to us, oh, I hate bugs. And I'm like, oh, but what about butterflies? Do you like butterflies? And everybody says yes. Well, most people, some people don't like the flying, sucking things. Oh, then definitely crickets. I love crickets. I love the noise that they make. Uh, I also love the fact that they're so nutrient dense. So 
it's this little kind of mini livestock that we can reproduce on a really large scale and to help feed people with. So I really, really love crickets. Giant burrowing cockroaches are definitely on my list. I have a giant burrowing cockroach named Woodstock. I've had her for about 18 years. And giant burrowing cockroaches are really, really misunderstood because they're Australian native cockroaches. They're not dirty or gross or disgusting in any way. They're actually really important for our environment. So they actually eat dry eucalyptus leaves and turn that back into soil. And then it's kind of circling the nutrients back into our food system. So how big is Woodstock? Um, She's about as big as up to here on my head. So what's that, like 10, 15 centimetres? Yeah, yep. So it's the heaviest cockroach in the world. They weigh about 35 grams. 18 years? Yeah, so I've had her since she was a baby and I had her mother before her. She was kind of, Woodstock was the runt of the litter. So I kept her and she goes around and educates kids about the importance of bugs in our environment. Um, she's done a lot of um, movies and um, music videos and things like that as well. She's been on Camp Orange quite often, so she's very famous. So like, I can't keep a ringtail possum as a pet. It's not legal to do so, but you can keep a giant no. burrowing cockroach as a pet? Yeah, definitely. And they make awesome pets because you can go away and you can leave them. They won't miss you. You can give them everything that they need. They don't smell. They don't make a mess. They're mostly quiet. Sometimes you can hear like a little bit of scratching in there. Um, And they can live, um, some insects live for a short amount of time and some can live for a long amount of time. That is amazing. Yeah, you mentioned the butterfly and to quote Nick Cave, I don't believe in an interventionist God there's enough in nature to make me go, look, I am not bigger than any of this. This is, I cannot possibly be bigger than this. There's like just how a butterfly lives is that is something to be in reverence of, in awe of, and that we can't eat food without it. We cannot live without pollinators. If there are no pollinators, there are no food. If there are no food, there are no people. End of story. It is astonishing. You know what? People always talk about bees as pollinators and bees definitely are our main pollinator, but people don't realise that things like mosquitoes and wasps and butterflies and flies, which are not necessarily things that people love, are also really important pollinators in our food system. We had a praying mantis that came in from the, some of the basil off our garden. Audrey was washing it and, oh, there's a little tiny baby praying mantis about the size of my thumbnail. And um, we quickly named him Jack. And I looked up to look what, what do praying mantises eat and I saw that, you know, you can feed them the little flies that hover around the bananas yep. one every three days. And we've got plenty of those in our house because we like bananas. And so we put him in this little see-through <laughs> box and um, he lived with us for about three or four weeks and Jack pretty much quadrupled in size. Yep. Wolfie never saw me hunting the fruit flies, which I did with a coffee cup. And then, you know, so in a, in a wild, you know, world of ethics, there, there I am, you know, like capturing live bait and then watching as this incredible creature would go bam and just, and ruthless, you know, he was eating the fruit fly while the thing was still flapping, but he's like, nah, I'm hungry, mate. And then we get up in the morning yeah. and Wolfie would be like, Jack, he's done a teeny tiny poo. Yes, he has. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. It was so cool. It was so, so, so cool. That was the most important thing out of the whole story is like the teeny tiny poos. Well, <laughs> everybody, we tell him everybody poos. Yeah. Everybody poos, Wolfie. It's fine. Even Jack 
the and we because uh, we had to come we had to come away. So Wolfie and I went out to the garden. We let Jack go, and um, it was really interesting. So you, I love that you you know you had this moment in Thailand because growing up as an entomologist, I'm sure you were aware that people ate insects. But did you experience any of the aversion or around it when you saw? Because I've been to you know countries in Asia, you just see piles. Like I'm talking like a mountain of roasted flavored sugared bugs. I'm talking like a big woven basket with probably 100 kilos of these things in them, right? And, you know, I was, Jesus, what am I looking at? Just because I've never seen it in coals, in a shrink wrap plastic, doesn't mean it's not food. Like, did you experience that kind of your tummy going boop, boop, boop? Um, Well, we actually went to the local market specifically to try them because it was something that I had heard about before. So I wasn't um, surprised by it. I had already kind of prepared myself, yeah, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that with any kind of new foods, people really need to prepare themselves mentally before they are going to try it. I was really excited to kind of see what the texture and what the taste would be because obviously you can't, there's no one there to ask, like, what can you compare this to? Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the most exciting thing to me. And I was quite disappointed that the first thing that I tried wasn't actually that nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm lucky that I went back and tried again, tried something else, because just like, you know, you can make a te- steak taste bad by cooking it the wrong way, you can make bugs taste bad by cooking them the wrong way as well. You've obviously had to look into this. What's the difference psychologically in our society, Western, modern, Australian society, that has people kind of go, ooh, around bugs as far as food goes? Well, yeah, I feel like people are getting a lot more educated, so it doesn't happen as much as it did before. Mm. But definitely people think that when they're eating insects, they have to eat all the legs and wings and antennas that go in there as well. We haven't grown up eating insects. It's not part of our regular diet at the moment, unlike other countries where they grow up eating it. But for us, eating, you know, a hot dog, which when you think about the ingredients that go into a hot dog, that's much more normal than eating a cricket. When we talk about eating jelly, we don't say, oh, we're going to go and eat the boiled skins and hooves of cows and pigs, which is what gelatin really is. We talk of it as a food ingredient. So when we're looking at insects in the future, really we'll be looking at insects just as a food ingredient. Exactly. Like what's a hot dog? It's lips and assholes. That's what it is. It's the not chop. <laughs> I was trying to say it a bit more nicely than that. but um, yes. <laughs> We talked about that you don't do swearing. I'll do the swearing. Uh, that's what hot dogs are. <laughs> I remember because I watched my European grandmother make sausages because we could get that stuff from the butcher for no money uh, in Brisbane. Nobody wanted that stuff because this is back when the yeah. butcher was not inside the supermarket and they you know, should just go and say, I need this and this and this, pointing at the bits with the English that she had. And in it went to the meat grinder. It all became mince. Yep. All, that's what happened. That was what bol- bolognese was. We're not mincing wagyu. Yep. No, we're mincing the, the sinewy bit of the calf muscle, the you know, lips, cheeks, ears, whatever. You know, that's what it was. But for, for some reason, you know, the, I remember, was it Third Rock from the Sun? There was a, t- there was a sitcom about you know, a, a group of aliens that were masquerading as a standard American family. And someone was talking about, oh, no, this is my, this is my dog, Rufus. I love Rufus. And one of them said, is Rufus tasty? And she went, oh, my God, I'd never eat Rufus. And he says, oh, so eating this animal is fine, but eating this animal is not fine. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And it's all yep. just in how we 
perceive it, isn't it? It's just all in the way we frame the animals around us, which is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. When it comes to, I mean, you're a farmer, which is awesome. <laughs> How many head of livestock have you got? <laughs> oh, millions. So we don't have heads of livestock. We have tons of livestock, we would call them. So we have millions and millions of crickets. And when you go into our cricket farm, it's like going to Bali in the middle of summer. It's very hot, it's very humid, and it's extremely noisy. But that's the way that they like to be. So that's how we keep them. What kind of crickets do you farm? So we breed Akita domesticus, which is like a house cricket, they would call it. That's the main one that we do. And we've chosen that one specifically because it's really, really nutrient dense. And we can farm them on a large scale very safely. And they've got low color, low flavor and low texture. So we can add them to other kinds of foods and you wouldn't even know that they're there. Are they uh, native to Australia or are they... Uh, no. So they're the kind of cricket that you would get if you are going to the pet shop and you're buying something for your lizard or something like that, the same right. kind of species. Yeah. So the crickets that live in my backyard are not these crickets? They could be because we have those crickets in Australia now um, because people have released them. But, um, yeah, we have lots of different kinds of crickets in Australia, though, hundreds and hundreds of species. So it could be any any kind of cricket. Are your crickets the ones where you can tell the temperature by timing the chirps? <laughs> uh, we can do that. Most crickets will do that, yep. Same cicadas. You can do that with cicadas too. I love that. was cicadas. That's right. That was the Queensland. That's, that's how you knew, you know, is it a hot day? You can tell how far apart the chirps are. To, that's the, yeah, temp and you that's know the what? temperature. It, it has to be over 25 degrees for cicadas to be able to make their noise as well with their wings. So if they're not making any noise, generally it isn't above 25 degrees. It's the sound of summer, man. It's the sound of summer. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the part that I'm, I'm interested in? And, and, and a part of like this whole podcast is really me getting to ask you this question. What do you know about the sentience of the insects that you farm? Insects don't actually have a brain the same that we have a brain. They mainly react to stimulus. So they don't have like a memory, they don't have feelings, but generally they'll react to stimulus in a way that will kind of save them in any kind of situation. So it's more of like a self-preservation kind of act. So even the most complicated insect societies, ants, termites, bees, even the most complicated insect societies that involve thousands, if not millions of creatures, that's all just pheromonal signals and, you know, visual signals and they're just reacting. There's no, you know what, I think I'm going to have a run of the queen today. All right, Barry, off you go. That's right. So there, it's more, um, especially in those societal insects, it's more of like pheromone signaling and things like that. So they all work um, together to maintain the hive or maintain the nest. That's so, so fascinating. So when I see a, a cricket, or let's say, you know, when I see Jack go for the fruit fly, when I see first the fruit fly trying to evade me capturing it, that's just the fruit fly going, not even I know this, it's just my ancestors survived, not even, I'm, I don't want to give it a sentience, like, oh, this creature has ancestors that moved out of the way when a shadow came by, therefore they survived, and that trait now exists in every one of its descendants. And yeah. when Jack sees the thing move quickly in front of it, its claws go out to grab it, and it, it just goes, ah, oh, food. Yeah. 
So the little fruit fly is uh, like at the bottom of the food chain. So basically everybody wants to eat a fruit fly. So the fruit fly will really just move around any kind of uh, activity around it. It's assuming that it's going to get eaten. So it wants to move around and be away. On the other hand, Jack, Jack is a predator. So Jack is looking for food. So his instinct is to look for things that are moving around quickly and to identify them as food and to eat them. That's as far as the process kind of goes. What's kind of interesting is I'm trying to grasp the concept of the sentience of these creatures using my brain, which knows that I'm me, knows that I'm a human. Yet a fruit fly doesn't know it's a fruit fly and a praying mantis doesn't know it's a praying mantis. It just is. It doesn't know if it's hungry. It doesn't go, oh, I, you know, oh, I might go and get a fruit fly later. It just goes, oh, that's that signal that says I haven't eaten in two days. Oh, there's something that's moving. Bang. I can't keep using the word I. It's not, that's not even that. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm getting, I'm getting a bit wrapped up in the idea yeah. that it has a sense of self. It doesn't have a sense of self, does it? No, no. Yet some of them, and this is, now we go into this part. I'm sure anyone that has a companion animal, uh, be it a cat or a dog or a giant burrowing cockroach, uh, not that, be it a cat or a dog, would probably agree that there's more going on with a mammal more going on as far as a sense, certainly not of self, but certainly of intent and forward planning and learning and and things like this. Would that, does that sound right? Yeah, definitely. And would it sound right to expect that those things can also be applied to animals that we choose to farm for meat? Cows, pigs, sheep, chickens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've met some pretty cuddly chickens. <laughs> I've met some chickens that, oh, he's here, and they run over. You know, not because they know, I never bring food, but they know they want to cuddle. I've met some cows that are delightful. Cows are like a, a gigantic puppy dog, like 800 kilos of puppy. <laughs> true. <laughs> that is true. And I would say that I don't think it's a stretch. If anyone's ever seen accidentally stepped on their dog's foot, you know, they would probably agree that a dog feels pain or a cat feels pain if you've ever taken an animal to the vet. And, and certainly fear. Like once that cage comes out, we're going to the vet. Once they know they're going to the vet, it's all over. Wait, if you've ever tried to give a pill to a cat, if you ever tried to get a cat into a cage to take to the vet, boy, like that cat knows that there's a threat. It's not just a an aversion reaction. It's a far more complicated, far more thought out way of getting, trying to, you know, not do this thing. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that extends to chickens, pigs, sheep, cows. And in fact, I know so I work with someone that used to work in an abattoir. This person is now vegetarian, in fact, vegan. <laughs> and this person looked me square in the eye and says, mate, I used to work in an abattoir. He says, cows feel fear. I would put them in the race and they would go towards, they, they knew what was happening on the other side of that door. They could hear it, they could smell it, and they were terrified. And... If you've ever watched Temple Grandin, you know that makes for bad tasting beef. But yeah, like if that's a part of what I am also kind of wanting to avoid when I eat uh, insects, do do insects feel fear? Do insects feel pain as far as you're aware? No, they don't. And that's because of the type of brain that they have. So it's hard for humans to understand because we have these companion animals that will 
bond with us and will have these behaviours and can learn how to do different things. Um, when we're talking about insects, they're just reacting to stimulus and that's it. Even when, like in the olden days, when they'd make like a flea circus, those animals haven't learned how to do stunts. They've just figured out the things to do to make the flea do a thing. Yeah. So even like we do bug wrangling for like a lot of movies and TV shows and things like that, the animals are not trained. We just learn how to handle the animals to get them to do what you need them to do. So we're giving them stimulus in different ways to get them to walk in a certain direction or to jump at a certain point and different things like that. Right. So what would you say to someone who's chosen to not eat uh, meat for ethical reasons that might be considering uh, insect nutrition? Yeah, well, insect protein is definitely a more ethical alternative to traditional forms of protein, and it really is up to your individual choice. So we do have a lot of vegetarians or vegans that choose that way of living for the environmental ethical reasons that will switch over to include insects as part of their diet because there are nutrients that they're missing out on. We also have some awesome people that connect with us all the time that choose not to include insects as part of their diet because it doesn't fit in with their belief system. So um, from my standpoint, I know that we work with insects all the time. If they could feel those kinds of things, we actually give them a really good life. We give them all the things that they would need when it's time to harvest them. We do it in a way that they wouldn't be able to feel anything if they could feel anything, if that makes sense. So from our point of view, we're doing everything that we can to make this a really, really ethical process for them, um, even yeah. if they could feel that, which we don't believe that they can. So in all the tests that entomologists can do, they haven't yet found a way to show that there is a pain response at slaughter, harvest, yeah, we harvest them. So what we actually do to harvest them is we put them into a, a like a cool room first and that cools them down to a slow temperature and puts them to sleep. Um, and then from there, we freeze them. So it's a really, really simple process, but we, we've really thought about it so that if there was a chance that they could feel anything, that they wouldn't actually feel anything during that process. I had a bee problem when I lived in America. I had a hybridized bee problem. They weren't killer bees, but they were halfway between. They were half killer <laughs> bee, half European bee. Really, really angry. We had two yeah. hives. One one hive had split off to form another hive, so we had one in the front and one in the back. And these incredible people showed up because I was like, I, I can't kill 50,000 bees. No. There was tons of them. So like, I can't kill them. I don't want that much poison, you know, in my backyard. Also, it's like it doesn't feel right. And so yes. I found these incredible people that the guy said, okay, cool, we'll be there at four in the morning. I'm like, why? He says, well, I need to get them before the sun, just when the sun starts to come up so I can see what I'm doing, but before it gets warm because then yes. they're really docile, they're cold, they don't have any thermal regulation. So when they're cold, they just go slow and yes. it's, it's so much easier. And this guy showed up in his full beekeeper spacesuit with a bee vacuum cleaner. He smoked the hive, he smoked the hive, and then essentially like vacuumed up 25,000 bees from the front and 25,000 bees from the back and put them in his truck in this special crate and had took them to an orchard 500 k's away where they lived out the rest of their life making oranges and apples. <laughs> 
and that's awesome. Um, when we farm the crickets as well, we actually work really silly hours. So we start on our farm normally about one or two o'clock in the morning because that's the coldest part of the day for us. So we've got air conditioning and humidifiers in there. So they're all turned off at nighttime. Um, so we can go in, we can harvest them um, without disturbing them too much because they're all asleep. Do they put out a distress signal to the other or do you, do you basically cool the entire population down and only grab the mature ones? So they're all cooled down at that time because it's generally right. cooler um, at one, one, two o'clock in the morning yeah, anyway. Yeah. So they're all really, really slow and docile. And then we're just harvesting the ones that need to be harvested. Wow. Now let's talk about the, um, do you have the comparisons between the resources to make, say, for example, a kilo of steak versus a kilo of, of, of cricket protein, like as far as calories in, calories out? Yeah, so if we've got 10 kilos of feed, we can only produce one kilo of beef. We can produce about uh, four kilos of chicken, about six kilos of pork, um, or we can produce nine kilos of cricket protein. And that's because insects are not mammals. They don't waste a lot of energy maintaining a set body temperature. So most of what they eat gets converted directly into body mass. So, okay, hang on. So... I've got this 10 kilo bag of feed, which is probably food that a human could have eaten. Let's be honest, mm -hmm. uh, the things that we feed beef, all right, and pork and, and lamb and chickens. Uh, humans can eat all that stuff. So there's 10 kilograms of edible human food. We put that into a cattle farm. For 10 kilograms, we'll get one kilo out of that, of, of beef. Yes. For 10 kilos of that, we'll get how many kilos of pork? Uh, so about four kilos of pork. Okay, so it's six kilos of chicken, yep. four kilos of pork. But if we're farming insects, 10 kilos of feed makes nine kilos. Now, I'm not in manufacturing, but your raw material to product ratio is pretty awesome. Yep. <laughs> what about water? So we only use a tiny little bit of water. So say if you've got a 200-gram steak, um, a 200-gram steak takes about 4,900 litres of water to be able to produce. Oh, my God. Yeah. To make a 200 grams of cricket protein, it takes us under one milliliter of water to produce that. Okay. So 200 grams of steak is 4,900 litres. That is a above-ground swimming pool. Yep. For 200 grams. Yeah. So if you replace one meat-based meal a week with a meal that uses crickets as your source of protein instead, you can actually save over 100,000 litres of drinking water a year. So that's about four swimming pools full of water. This is really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You know, it's in water and it's in land use to create the feed that it's almost like double touching. It's like, you know, we've, we're going to grow this yes. thing and use heaps of water to grow this thing to then feed to that thing and use heaps of water to grow that thing so we can kill it, not use most of it, and just eat a bit of it. Far out. The ratios are mind-boggling. Also, we don't use people food to be able to feed our crickets. So what we actually do is we take fruit and vegetable waste, mainly from farms, so maybe like the ugly fruit and veg that doesn't make it to the supermarket, also from food processing and manufacturing. So it might be like pulps, um, spent yeast from brewery manufacturing and things like that. Um, and we circle that back into the food system as feed for our insects. So normally that would go to landfill. So that's how we're able to save so much water, save so much on greenhouse gases as well 
by circling this perfectly good food back into the food system as feed for another source of protein. Yeah. When you put food waste into landfill, it off-gasses methane, which is way worse as far as uh, a warming gas in our atmosphere than carbon dioxide. So by taking this food out of, like, say, for example, you are getting a, if you want to get a can of pineapples, right, you only get it into the ring with the bit poked out of the middle. So what happens to the stuff on the inside of the skin? What happens to the pop out in the middle? Goes in the dump or it goes to your farm where crickets eat it. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So your raw materials, I'm guessing the, the, the cost point of your raw materials for manufacturing is also pretty pretty low then. Um, at the moment it is, but actually food waste is getting really, really competitive. So there's lots of amazing businesses that are doing things with food waste. So getting that food waste is actually really competitive at the moment. We've been working with our food manufacturers for a lot of years now um, and we actually train their staff. We have special bins to the type of food waste that we can accept. We go in there every six months and we train their staff on what kind of things can go in our bins um, and then we arrange to get those picked up. So normally they would be paying a dumping fee to get rid of that food but we're taking that but it still costs us because we need to still do all that training we're maintaining that system of getting um all that food waste back to us so they're not quite seeing it as a point of revenue yet or are they starting to charge for it um not yet but they will eventually <laughs> yeah. start to charge for and, and and right and rightly so you know it's <laughs> like you know my grandmother who i mentioned before would that it would be like hoof to snout you know she's from czechoslovakia Their cuisine was developed at a time when there was no refrigeration, but they would use every single part of the animal versus, I only want this part. Oh, I don't don't like that part of the chicken. I only like this part of the chicken, you know. I don't like the chicken with the bone on it. Uh, I don't like that steak that has like that little bit of fat on it. Like you didn't have the opportunity to be able to do that, did you? (laughs) No, there was none of that. There was none of that. So the circular manufacturing model, I think, is something that we're going to see so much more of in most definitely, I mean, you're seeing it already in, in furniture. You're seeing it, it's starting to happen in the more automotive industry, particularly around battery technology with recycling of the spent batteries that turn them into new batteries. Is there much circular uh, manufacturing, essentially? Is there a, is much circular farming going on for livestock? Um, Yeah, so specifically around insects, there's a lot of circular economy things going on. So our our factory actually runs on zero waste. So even down to our insect poo, which is called frass, we send that back to the farm and they use that as a fertilizer product. There's amazing companies that are doing things for animal feed where they are Um, Again, using the food waste that they're getting from like restaurants and things like that, they're feeding it to black soldier fly larva and then Uh. they turn that black soldier fly larva into oils that can be used. They're using it for protein, for pet feed or animal food or even fertilizer products as well. So there's a company called Coterra and they actually do that on site. So they have these amazing um, maggot farming robots and all they do is put in your food waste in there and the insects and the robots do the rest of the work for you. Amazing. I still can't get over the the water usage. 4,900 litres of water to make 200 grams of steak uh, versus 200 grams of cricket protein. What did you say, less than a milliliter? Yeah. Let's get to the nutrition part. Two kilograms of animal feed, which could probably have been eaten by humans, to create 200 grams of beef. 4,900 litres of drinking water to create 200 grams of beef versus 
222 grams of food waste to create 200 grams of cricket protein and less than a milliliter of water to create 200 grams of cricket protein. How does the nutrition uh, stack up? If you have a cricket protein powder, as an example, that's around 69% digestible protein. It's got four times the amount of calcium as milk in there. It's got three times the amount of iron as spinach. It's got three times the amount of omega-3 as salmon in there. Um, You've got heaps of B12 as well, and it's got all nine essential amino acids in there. If you have let's compare it to jerky because it's like a dried product. Yeah. So say jerky would be about 33% protein. It's just to give you an example compared to the 68% protein in the cricket protein. So does that mean for 100 grams, I'm just doing like the 100 grams is the second column on the food labeling. 100 grams of jerky would be 33 grams of protein? 33 grams of protein, yep. And 100 grams of cricket protein would be 69% protein. Right. And as far as, uh, I mean, uh, as someone who doesn't eat animals or animal products, I, I know, you know, I'm very aware of, you know, amino acids and things like that. So, but for people who may not be across that, if you uh, were to ingest a cricket protein as you, the only protein in the meal, are you getting everything you need or do you need to pop something else in there? No. So if you're adding cricket protein to your meal, you've got all nine essential amino acids. So your body uses those nine essential amino acids to create the other 11 amino acids that our body needs. So basically that's all of the amino acids that your body needs, as well as the B12, which mostly um, vegans and vegetarians are missing out on that B12. Yeah. And it's a natural digestible source of B12 as well. And, and this is the thing, like in, in days past before factory farming and before mechanized agriculture, if I only ate vegetables, I'd get heaps of B12 because of the dirt that would be all over the, the, the yes. veggies and it would just kind of find its way into my body. And that's fine. But now I buy things that are brushed and washed and there's not a speck of soil on these veggies, which is why as someone who doesn't eat animal products, I supplement with B12. I supplement with animal-based yep. B12, uh, but I still have to supplement with B12, which is very, very important because yep. it can cause a, a cognitive issue, which is which is a problem. Yeah. So, and a lot of people um, don't realize that, you know, B12 is really awesome for your mood, like it boosts your mood. And if you're feeling a little bit tired, especially in the afternoon, the B12 is helping with your brain function and it will help with your energy as well. So a lot of vegans and vegetarians think that they're low on iron, which is normally not the case. It's the B12 that you're missing. When it comes to meat in our diet, there's land use, there's water, but then there's also this like almost fourth climate zone of our planet, which is refrigeration. Uh, Whether it be a refrigerated truck, a diesel truck coming all the way down, you know, Cape York or whatever, and the big cattle stations, and it's coming down to Brisbane, or, you know, if it's come out from the country and then it's sitting in a freezer somewhere for, I don't know, days or weeks. You know, and the the energy required, all that diesel to get it to the city from the farm and then keep it refrigerated, keeping it safe, not only at the plant, at the abattoir and at the packing plant, but then at the supermarket and then in your home. It might sit in your deep freeze for six months. Who knows? How does the energy stack up? And this, like, to be fair, all that stuff happens after the animal is, is slaughtered, right? How does the energy stack up between say, for example, beef, we've been using beef, and from there to I'm now I'm eating it. Well, with the cricket protein, what we actually do is we dry it out into a shelf-stable powder. So we actually 
get the moisture out of the crickets and we use that as like a cricket milk kind of product as well. So as we're drying them, we're actually collecting all that water. It's not getting wasted back into the atmosphere. We're kind of reusing that as another kind of product as well. But because the cricket protein powder is an ambient product, then it doesn't have to travel very far because we actually farm them in urban areas. So we're just located in Western Sydney. All of the food waste comes to us um, via truck, but we're really close to where those um, food manufacturers are. And then because it's a shelf-stable product, it can just get shipped without needing all that refrigeration. You can store it at home for a period of up to 24 months without refrigeration as well. Okay. For me right now, like it all makes a lot of sense. Sky, how do we get from here to there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like we're starting to go towards more flexitarian diets. So people before they weren't really interested about where their food comes from. Because of social media now, um, people are more aware of climate change. Now they're eating more flexitarian diets, they're eating less meat, they're eating more plant-based diets and are looking at alternative foods that kind of fit in with their beliefs. So they're looking for sustainable, nutrient-dense, healthy local foods to feed their families and insect proteins really do tick all the boxes. You can actually buy insect protein products in supermarkets now, which is really exciting because that's kind of one of the problems that we've had is the accessibility. People didn't know where to be able to get these kinds of things. But now you can actually go into the supermarket and buy cricket protein with your bread and milk. Which is, as you mentioned, For me, no weirder than picking up a box of jelly, which is hoofs and snouts and bones and stuff (laughs) scraped off the top of a vat. (laughs) That's what gelatin is, man. It's no weirder than that. It it really, really isn't. Obviously, with your background in education, that's a when you're talking to kids, how do you get them from "Eh," to ah, like in the course of one you know lesson. Well, you know what? We've actually been running our Future Food program for over 15 years now, and we've seen 1.3 million students come through that program over that time. So some of those people are actually adults now. And I was in the supermarket with my three little kids, and this man kind of tapped me on the shoulder and was like, hey, are you the bug lady? (laughs) And I was kind of like, yes, stay away from my kids, please. But he went on to explain that when he was in year five, I went to his school and taught him about insect proteins and um, their importance in our food system. And he actually buys our products because it's something that he really believes in too. So when we're educating these kids, it really does stick with them because they haven't learnt from their parents normally that this is not something that we're normally eating. So we're finding that if parents and teachers are really enthusiastic and are willing to educate their kids about the importance of sustainable foods, then that really carries on with them for a long time. This might be the first time people are having the idea of a sustainable food system put into into their minds. Obviously, the last, the, the recent election, we, we heard a lot about, you know, water and water rights and how all that stuff went around. W- what kind of choices are we facing moving forward as far as animal agriculture goes and water use goes? And, and I always like to frame it this way. What are the opportunities that we have now as a country? What are the opportunities that we can kind of grasp and benefit from? Well, um, scientists are doing a lot of work to secure a food future, basically, with 
unfortunately not a lot of help from the government. So most of the people that are doing work in this area are, you know, like startups, they're food scientists, they're biotechnologists and things like that, that realize this is a really big problem. And if we don't start working on it now, like a lot of people have been working on this for a long, long time before this came into the media. So now we're at the stage where we've got things like cellular agriculture, we're using more regenerative farming techniques, we're using a lot of agricultural technologies as well. Um, We're starting to farm things like seaweed, we're looking at more plant-based diets and there's a lot of options in those kinds of areas. So all of these things are already becoming available. So it's really up to consumers to take a look in their supermarket, to go online, learn about these things and use your wallet to kind of help these businesses actually make a difference in our food system because the government really isn't doing anything for us at the moment. But definitely looking at our food system and looking at all these small little changes that you can actually make within your own diet, like as I said before, one little change during the week can save so much water over the course of the year. And that doesn't cost you anything extra to be able to do that. It's really you just making that choice, that option to make a better choice for you and for your children and your grandchildren. Oh, I love that. I first heard Shannon Knoll say that when people asked him in like early 2004 when Shannon was asked about, oh, you know, is it still on between you and Guy? He goes, mate, people vote with their wallets and I've done 200 gigs this year. Yeah, (laughs) and he's, I was like, they do, they vote with their wallets. And upward pressure on markets is not to be underestimated in this country, you can you can just ask Nokia. Uh, <laughs> so suddenly, everybody wanted the other thing, and Nokia's yeah. top. Nobody cared. When it comes to price point, how have you seen the price point per kilo or per two hundred grams? We we're talking about. Where's that come from? As you've got your uh, strategies more efficient, and and where do you think you can get to as far as where you get your energy from, and 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 such and such. Yeah, so at the moment we run on about 80% solar energy. So we're moving into a new larger farm later this year where we'll be running on 100% renewables and we already run on zero waste. So when we first started doing this um, over 15 years ago, the price was around $200 a kilo for insect proteins just because it's a very labor-intensive process. But as more people have started to include insect proteins as part of their diet, as more food manufacturers are coming on board, we're able to scale that production. So now we're actually farming the insects using robotics and artificial intelligence to make it a much more streamlined and much more cost-efficient process. So just if we take the cricket protein powder as an example, again, if you have a 200 gram steak, you've got about 25 grams of protein in there. So just think about how much you would pay for that. Um, And then you've got two tablespoons of the cricket protein powder, which would be the same amount of protein. That works out to be about $6 at the moment at a retail price. But as more people take this on, as we move into our larger farm, we'll be able to reduce that price even more. So the equivalent protein of a 200 gram steak is two tablespoons of cricket protein powder and that's about six bucks worth yeah right but as you mentioned the price drops with scale yeah definitely and that's extraordinary have you just got like mike cannonbrooks kicking in your door (laughs) like who's knocking because like here i am thinking going where are you with investment? You know, are you uh, are you still in <laughs> mum and dad round or are you like, because this seems to me like you are 
there's no overnight success. I was telling someone the other day, by the time you saw me on Australian Idol, I had worked seven days a week for nine years. All right. There's no yeah. overnight success. You've clearly been at this a very, very long time. Who's knocking on the door? Who are you? Has West Farmers gone, oh, so, Sky, <laughs> like, where are you with that? Can you talk about it? What you can talk about? So um, we actually have a small investment from Spradex, which is like an agricultural technology accelerator, um, an energy lab, which is an energy accelerator. So we've got two small investments from them so far. Um, and they've kind of helped us like grow our network, helped us harness our robotics and artificial intelligence um, and move to solar power as well, which has been really, really awesome for us. But um, we actually invest all of our profits back into our company to help it grow. So we haven't taken any big investments. Um, we still own like 95% of our company at the moment, but we will be raising around um, to help us move into our larger farm, kind of implement the robotics and artificial technologies and all that kind of stuff, which is really, really exciting for us because when we tried to raise money a number of years ago now, people wanted that kind of traction. They wanted that proof. They didn't believe that Australians were ready for insect proteins as part of their diet. And now we've actually got our cricket protein corn chips that are available in school canteens all around Australia. So you can't get much more proof than that, right? If kids are buying it in the school canteen, mum and dads are buying it in the supermarket shelf. I don't really see what else you can do to um, like prove that Australians are really ready for this kind of protein. <laughs> taking just a moment away from the conversation to let you know that if you are enjoying the show please do us a favor uh, let somebody else know about it you can share it in the app you've got right now just hit share text it to someone share it to a uh, you know your, your news feed or whatever be really grateful if you did that that really helps us subscribe to the show like the show all the good stuff if you need me easy uh, send off your email at gmail.com if you really want to help us out we do have a patreon page where you can get ad-free episodes of the show there's also full video episodes more on the way patreon.com slash osha that really really helps us we do have to play some ads though so if ads aren't your thing jump on patreon but until then here's some ads or not depends on where you listen there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you first started, were people puzzled that you're, you're farming crickets? Like, what was the thing that was driving you to do this? Well, definitely when um, we first started, if we were doing um, like a food expo or something like that, there was like a big force field around us. Like, people did not want to engage. They did not want to come near us. People said that I was either a visionary or I was super crazy. 
but it turns out I'm a little bit of a visionary. But definitely we're doing this for our children because without these kinds of things, without this transformation that we need within our food system, then there will not be enough food to feed our children and our grandchildren. It's not something that's happening in the future. This will happen during our lifetime. It really is. I, I was a part of a uh, middle of COVID. I was part of a big Zoom conference and and someone was saying, there's not enough food. We need less people. I'm like, mate, there's more than enough land and water. We could feed so many more people yep. if we just change what we in our society f- was acceptable on our plate. There's more than enough. Yeah, and when you think about it, like two or three years ago when we went to the supermarket, right, you wouldn't take any bags with you. You would just stick specs no. to get a plastic bag when you went to the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of a similar thing. We made a choice not to take the plastic bags and to take our own bags, and that's just normal now. You pick up your bags before you go to the shop. You don't want to be buying new yeah. bags all the time. It's the same kind of thing. We can make choices within our food system by what we're choosing to purchase. Yeah. And, you know, I was, where are you going? I'm just going down to the shops to get a loaf of bread, some milk and a turtle necklace. uh, And I'll be right back. (laughs) We've kind of, we've figured that part out. I think, yeah, once the conversation went around about, like, we're not talking about a full plastic bag in the ocean. We're talking about a piece of plastic so small, you'd need a microscope to see it. Yet it ends up in fish. And if you eat enough of them, that's going to end up in you. And that's when people went, ah, you know, (laughs) it had to come back to the personal choice. So when it comes to how does this affect me right now listening to this podcast, how does what we eat affect me personally? Not I'm hungry or I want to be full. How does it affect our life today, our children's lives in 10 years? Well, definitely what we're choosing to eat now is making a big difference because if we're choosing to eat things that are not sustainably farmed, um, they're hyper-processed as well, so they've got all these extra things that our body doesn't need, just adding to the cost to our environment, it's adding to the cost to our bodies as well because we don't need all this processed kind of food. If we're choosing to eat you know, minimally processed food, local foods, sustainable, nutrient-dense food, that's going to really make a big difference in the long run because you don't need to eat as much of the food. It's coming from a local source and a sustainable source. So it means that we're not releasing as much um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're not wasting as much water. We're not wasting as much feed as well. So look at things where you can get it in from your local farmer's market. You can support your local small businesses as well. And all these things, even though it might just seem like a small thing, it actually adds up to make a really big difference if everybody's doing it. Do you see a time where I remember about uh, like 10 years ago, I started getting interested in in this sort of thing. I hadn't got to the point where I was able to try it because I didn't know where I could. But I saw a design for essentially an automated black soldier fly harvester that you had in your house. It was about the size of like a, a, a clothes dryer. Do you see a time when something like that will be a in our home, like whether it be black soldier flies or some other kind of insect, where we will have the ability to, like I grow veggies in my garden, I'll be able to grow protein in my house. Definitely. And we do that in our house because I want to teach my kid about where they're foods come from, right? So we actually have a little mealworm farm and it just kind of works like a worm farm. So we give them uh, fruit and vegetable scraps 
and actually turn that into snacks for the kids. So I can make them mealworm cookies. They actually like salt and vinegar mealworms as well um, because my kids are a little bit more adventurous than some adults. But yeah, definitely it's something that you can look after the same way as you look after a worm farm. It doesn't smell. You can produce a lot of protein there and it's something that you can use to feed your family. It's really easy to do. Okay, so the infrastructure, do, do I just need the worm farms that I like, like get from the hardware store? Like we've got two in our house. Do I just need the regular worm farm? No, no. So it would be different to how you would have the worm farm, the kind of setup side of things, but how you would maintain it is really, really similar. Now I'm, I'm fascinated. Like how how often do you harvest? How many can you get? Normally it takes the mealworm about six weeks to get from an egg to a stage where you would harvest it, You could, depending on the weather. So if it's a bit colder, it takes a bit longer. Mm. If it's a bit warmer, it doesn't take as long. But it really depends how much you have there as well. But to feed a family of like three or four people, you could have a kilo of mealworms there quite easily sitting on your bench top and they can just be reproducing all the time. So every like four to six weeks, you're getting something that you can actually eat. Oh, wow. How do you harvest them? You could just pick them out. Yeah. There's the special sieves that you can use as well yeah. to be able to sieve them out to remove the substrate. So they, they live in like a wheat bran kind of bedding. So you could remove that um, and then you would just put them into the freezer and then cook them however you like. What? Okay. So are you saying like if I had six of them, at different points of the life cycle, I could eat it once a week? Yeah, definitely. Wow. Okay. So now I'm really interested. All right. Now that is wild because <laughs> my brother is a mad gardener. He taught me how to make wicking beds. We have wicking beds in our front yard and he taught me how to make them. He's very, very good. He's got a somewhat circular system. He's got his compost goes to his chickens. His chickens go to his eggs. His chicken poo goes on his garden. Blah, 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 blah. Like the water from his house goes. It gets, it's pretty clever. And he just said, bro, food is free. Food is free. It's the farming that costs money. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. It's incredible. Sky, you have given me so much to think about. If people are curious, <laughs> what website do they go to? What's your entry level? What's the green water slide of, <laughs> of the animal protein world? <laughs> So um, our website is circleharvest.com.au, which is our new website. So you can see all the different kinds of products there. Definitely the gateway bug would be our cricket protein corn chips. It kind of helps you get over that initial ick factor when it comes to eating something new because you know what a corn chip is supposed to taste like and it actually just looks and tastes like a regular corn chip but it's got more protein than an egg in the bag there. It's got 14% of your RDI of iron. It's got 14% of your B12 as well. It's got heaps of magnesium and zinc and all your amino acids for the day. So instead of eating, you know, a jam sandwich, you can actually reach for a bag of these cricket protein corn chips and it makes you feel really full. Um, it helps with your concentration and the magnesium helps with your sugar cravings in the afternoon. So definitely the way to go if you haven't tried insects before. Amazing. Sky, I know we had to reschedule this 67,000 times. I'm so grateful that you took the time to have this conversation with me because I like to think that the way we've had this conversation, I feel that we've walked people down the path of what we eat, why we eat it, how what we eat affects the world around us, the resources required. And if we're the kind of person that goes, oh, no, no, I, I don't do that because of the way it's manufactured, why would that logically not extend to our food? And 
I, I really hope we've, we've opened some people's minds to an interesting option that they have here. And I just couldn't be more grateful that you took the time and that you're committed to this. It's amazing. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> that was Sky Blackburn. You can find out more about Sky Blackburn at circleharvest.com.au. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of the show. I'll see you on Wednesday. We're going to have a quick look back at some of the previous episodes, episodes that stretch back all the way to 2013. Tell a mate, that really helps us. Please also check out Dad Pod. Uh, it's me and Charlie Clawson. I'm really proud of it. There's heaps of episodes about that. They start well before Wolfie was born. Over like nearly three years ago, I think we started Dad Pod Wolfie. And uh, we've got new episodes coming out right now. Uncle Charlie and me, we're making shows about you and Iona. It's cool, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks heaps. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, Instagram is a good place. I love seeing where you listen to the show. Thank you so much to the people that sent me a picture where they listen this week. Super cool. Some good gardening, some good roadside cleaning up. People actually laying pipe. Someone as a plumber. Now listen, pretty sick. Big thanks to everyone that helped me make the show. Toe Hyder on all the music, Bruce Steele on research and support, Andy Ma who cut it up, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. And um, that's it. We're off to watch some of the new episodes of Bluey, which are spectacular. Shall we go, Wolfie? Yeah? Okay. So sleep well and do beautiful things. <laughs>